Dear Lord, we thank you for our time together. I ask that you would help me to speak clearly and accurately from your word, that you would open hearts to receive your word and listen intently with the um, objective of obeying uh, to your glory. Amen. Psalm 3, I'll read that for us. It says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. During our lifetime, we'll see a great many trials. If you're not in one now, just wait a little bit. You'll be in one soon. Some may be smaller, others may be very intense. And as many trials as there are, there are just as many ways people have to cope with them and the stress that comes with those trials. And uh, I wanted to give you some of the popular ways that people deal with trials and the related pressure that comes with trials. So here's a few of them. Ignore it and it'll go away. So it's the, the ostrich, the ostrich way of dealing with trials. Here's another one, fight back. Some people say, just exercise, exercise, and that'll help you deal with it. Some others say, here's another answer, having more me time is what will help me deal with trials. Or I, we might say that might be why you have trials in the first place, because you have too much me time. Um, here's another, see a psychotherapist, be another way of dealing with trials. And if that's too worldly for you, how about a Christianized version? And these come from a popular Christian psychologist, his website. It says, learn simple relaxation and deep breathing exercises. Or get active physically. Have creative outlets would be one. Or see a Christian mental health specialist. And as I go through those two lists, you would see there's not a whole lot of difference there between the two lists, are there? What's missing from the equation? God, the Lord. The Lord's missing from the equation in both of those, sadly enough. But, but how and when does he fit into the equation? Uh, when the pain's intense, can we trust him? Is God sovereign over the trial, or is the trial sovereign over God? Is there any real hope for us in a difficult season? Well, in Psalm 3, David's prayer declares the Lord's trustworthiness during tribulation and models four steps we ought to follow so that God is glorified through our response. And here's the outline. I'll give it to you ahead of time. And it all starts with you must. So the first one in verses 1 through 2, you must seek the Lord about the problem. And at the end, I'll repeat all these. Uh, number 2, verses three, 3 through 6, you must rest in the Lord's protection. Number 4, verse 7, you must petition the Lord's deliverance. 
excuse me, that, that was number three, verse seven. Number four, verse eight, you must wait on the Lord's provision. And uh, we'll start this morning looking at the superscription in Psalm 3. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Ouch. David's fleeing from his own son. This psalm is one of trust in the Lord mixed with a whole lot of lament. David here is on the run during Absalom, that's his son's rebellion, and writes this psalm during that time. David is trusting in the Lord's care during this tumultuous time of rebellion, and while he's concerned about the mounting opposition, he's also confident in the Lord's protection and his ultimate vindication. The fact that it is his son who is pursuing him in order to kill him is a reminder of David's personal grief. This is his son trying to kill him. It's also descriptive of persecution and trials and tribulations in general. This is David's own son who now wants to end David's life. And he's gathered most of Israel at this time, many of whom were David's counselors, elders, friends, people he's really trusted to help him overthrow David. And the question is, why? Why is he doing this? Why is Absalom doing this? Let's uh, walk through some, some background. Turn to 2 Samuel 11. And I'll try to fill this in for you so that when we, when we come back to verses 1 through 2, we'll have a better idea of the environment in which this is all happening. And as you're turning there, I'll just start kind of giving you some information. By the time chapter 11 rolls around, David has sinned greatly against the Lord. The point of chapter 11 is in proving that David is not the long-awaited Messiah. And he's demonstrated that through adultery with Bathsheba, conspiracy against and murder of Uriah, that was Bathsheba's husband, and attempting to cover it all up, and impregnating Bathsheba in this immoral plan. And in verse 27 of that chapter, it says that David, it says that the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil in the sight of the Lord. So what happens now? In chapter 12, the Lord sends his man, his prophet Nathan, to confront David. And the result was that David repents, that's in verse 13, and the Lord forgives him also in verse 13. And if you want to see a picture of true repentance, contrite heart, contrite spirit, you would read Psalms 51 and 32, which are attached to this confrontation. And there is no loss of salvation for David here, but there are consequences to his sin. There's at least three, with the first one being the worst of the three. The enemies of the Lord now have occasion to blaspheme him because of what David's done. They can bring a reproach against his name, and that would be in verse 14. Um, and the second one, the child born of Bathsheba will die because of number one. And you might think that's pretty harsh, but it's a reminder that the Lord takes his people's holiness and his holiness seriously. There are consequences to treading upon that. And the third one, David's own family will suffer consequences both immediate and long-term. David has been forgiven, but there are still temporal consequences to his sin. And no doubt, you've heard the saying that sin takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. Well, this is exactly what happens with David. 
And the story continues in chapters 13 and 14. We'll just breeze over it kind of quickly. And it continues with David's family troubles. Sin doesn't stay compartmentalized. You let it into your life, and it, it spreads. It permeates like cancer. And so it does in David's life. In verses 1 through 22 of chapter 13, there was an incident of incestuous rape uh, of Tamar from Amnon, that's brother and sister, after which Amnon threw her out of his house onto the street. She runs and finds Absalom, David's son and her full brother, tells him about it. He minimizes it, minimizes the trauma, tells her just to keep quiet, and then he uses the incident as an excuse to fulfill a plot he already had cooked up, and that was he wanted to remove Amnon, who was a front in front of him in succession to David's throne. So he's going to use that as, a, as an excuse, as justification, to take Amnon out. And in verse 21, it says, when David heard the news again about Amnon and Tamar, that he got angry, but he didn't do anything to remedy the problem, just got angry. And so after two years, stewing over the incident, Absalom gets his other brothers together and deceitfully orchestrates the death of Amnon. Does that sound familiar? David deceitfully orchestrating the death of Uriah just a few chapters earlier, like father, like son. In verse 33 of chapter 13, David hears the news of this conspiracy and murder, but he does nothing again. Absalom then flees to nearby Geshur, which is a sanctuary city, for a period of three years, and David does nothing to resolve that problem. He only mourns in his heart for Absalom. The sin here is spreading, the consequences are growing, and David is adding to them by failing to seek the Lord and discipline his family appropriately. And so the train wreck gets worse from here. Chapter 14, verse 1. Other people, the wrong kind of people, have noticed David's failure to parent Absalom correctly and his conflicted will to uphold his royal duty, so they devise a plan to capitalize on that, and they're going to get Absalom back into the city. That's their plan. And so they wanted to play on David's heartstrings over Absalom and manipulate him and cause him to bring Absalom back for their selfish motives. And guess what? Worked beautifully. Worked beautifully. So Absalom is recalled to Jerusalem by David, and he lives there for two full years without actually seeing David. And that's something that David set up. And the whole point in that was to give Absalom time to repent over what he had done. However, Absalom uses the time and hardens his heart. He doesn't repent. Instead, he devises a way, a deceitful way, to be brought before David without actually repenting so that he can sway David to himself even more. And that's what happens. Chapter 15, verse 1. As soon as Absalom gains David's trust, it doesn't take him very long. By playing on his emotions, he sets his rebellious plan against David in motion. Just as sin has not been dealt with and it's getting worse, so Absalom has not been dealt with and he's getting worse, deathly worse. Absalom is cunning and he is setting himself up for the kill. He's got David's trust, but off to the side in verses 1 through 12, he draws more and more people to himself. He draws more means of action to himself and he sways people's hearts to himself. And this was relatively easy for him 
uh, because chapter 14, verse 25 tells us that he was praised by all because of his good looks. I wouldn't have that problem. Just as in recent history, we might think this is pretty silly, but just as in their recent history, people fell for Saul because of his good looks. That would be 1 Samuel 9. So likewise, they're falling for Absalom because he looked good and manipulated emotions well. He was becoming extraordinarily popular with all of Israel. And just as a side note, you appraise a person by their looks alone, and you will most likely get a person who only has looks alone. And that's what they ended up with with Saul. That's what they ended up with with Absalom. The sin is festering to deadly levels, and it's right under David's nose. It's in his own household. This is why you deal with sin. It dishonors the Lord, and it has consequences, and they can be deadly. You play with sin, it's going to play with you. You sow the wind, Hosea tells us, you reap the whirlwind. David has done that. He's still doing that. He has failed to follow the Lord's plan for her family and for governing, so he is now reaping the consequences or about to reap the consequences. So, by failing to follow the Lord's plan, David's created the perfect storm, and here it is. An entitled man-child who has the will to destroy his parents, the deviousness to do it, and the capability to use those traits to his advantage, and he does. And that doesn't change throughout history. Chapter 15, 12 through 14. And that tells us that support for Absalom's insurrection was strong, increasing, and overwhelming. And Absalom is like the young Roaring lion with deadly intentions coming for the older lion. But in God's providence, David gets advance warning of this word and wanting to escape the death threat on his life and preserve the city, which he worked so hard for to, to beautify, namely Jerusalem, David flees. And I wonder if at that time when he was fleeing, if you thought about the Lord's warning to Cain in Genesis 4-7, you'll remember... The Lord warned Cain because of his sin, and he said, you better repent because if you don't, sin is crouching at the door and his desire is for you, but you must master it. It's not far-fetched to imagine David fleeing from his own throne, his own city, thinking that he had failed to master his sin, and as a result, Absalom, like a predator, was now crouching at his door with a desire to kill him. Absalom was the monster David had created, and now the monster wants to kill the creator. And I would say, oh, sure, Absalom was responsible for his own actions. At the same time, he was greatly influenced by his father's failure to deal with sin. The point is, sin has consequences. David's been forgiven, but there are still consequences. And consequences have great memories. You might forget, but they don't. Consequences may have slipped David's mind in the past, but they didn't mean they went away. On the contrary, they grew, they festered, they became worse over time, and now David has a murderously spoiled son on his hands. Absalom sees what his father has, he wants it, and he's going to pry it out of his cold, dead hand at first opportunity he gets. Absalom intends David's death to sign, seal, and deliver the throne to him. And this is why Absalom is doing what he's doing. David has failed to deal with sin properly. Absalom has swayed most of the population to his side. And so David 
flees from his own son. With that, go back to Psalm 3. That's the history. That's why David is fleeing. That's the pain that's wrapped up in David's heart right now. And so in verses 1 through 2, we come to the first step to follow when you're faced with trials. And it is you must seek the Lord about the problem. Notice the first two words. It says, O Lord. Notice where David starts. David starts his lament not by seeking man's help first, not by grumbling and complaining over the circumstances, not by justifying his failures, not by questioning the Lord, but by praying to the Lord. Look at verse 1, O Lord. Verse 3, O Lord. Verse 7, O Lord. It's pretty clear. David's faced with a life and death situation. This is more than he can handle since consequences have become overwhelming and the Lord has used this to draw him to himself and it is working, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, three times, very emphatic. And we might come to situations, I know we do, in our own life where we say, well, I can't handle this. I'm at the end of my rope. I, I, I can't control this. There's nothing else I can do about this trial, these circumstances I find myself in or I've created, whatever it may be. And I would say, right, good, Congratulations, that's exactly where God wants you. That's exactly where he wants you, relying on him. Right, you can't. He can. In fact, in John 15, 5, you don't have to turn there, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. In the stream of progressive revelation, David is trusting in the God of the old covenant to save him. In our time, we trust in the same God of the new covenant, So there's a much greater fulfillment now. While David trusted in the Spirit of God with him in his time, the Old Covenant, we trust in the Spirit of God in us in the New Covenant. We have a greater realization of hope and trust than David because we have more revelation than David concerning the same saving God. So David trusts. And immediately he goes to the Lord in prayer. And I want you to notice there's a relational intimacy here when he addresses him. The word is Yahweh for Lord. That's the covenant God of Israel. This is the God who has revealed himself as the lover of Israel in Deuteronomy chapters 4, 7, and 10. This is the God who had cut down all David's enemies and appointed a permanent place for Israel in 2 Samuel 7. And this is the same God who promises to establish an everlasting kingdom which would flow out of David's line, through which the Messiah would come. This is Yahweh. This is the Lord, and he is who David runs to for help. So, having his theology straight, he sets his concerns before the Lord. Look with me in verses 1 and 2. It says, How my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. Well, the trouble's obvious. David has a multitude of enemies. David's foes have increased, and they've increased to a number of at least 10,000. And we know that because in Hebrew, the same root word is used for increased in verse 1, many in verse 1 and 2, and many thousands in verse 6, which has the meaning of 10,000s. And in fact, some of your translations may actually have 10,000s in verse 6. And because of the specificity of Scripture, we also know the time when this happened, because in 2 Samuel 15, 12, the same Hebrew root word is used, 
when it says the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continuously with Absalom. This is an army, and it's getting ready to engage in physical warfare against David, but that's not all. There's another component to this. They're also engaging in psychological warfare with David. And it's, it's important for us to realize this and to know this because the enemy fights nasty, doesn't have rules he abides by. So what's the claim? The claim is that God has abandoned you, David. That's the claim. The accusation of many is that there is no deliverance for him in God. That's the accusation. I want you to note, they aren't saying God can't save you. That's not what they're saying. They're saying God won't save you. That's what they're saying. That's painful stuff. Paul Tripp has rightly said, sometimes the worst part of a trial is the sin which you bring into it. Yeah, that's pretty painful. David's aware of his sin. He's carrying that. He's, he's been stabbed over that. And now they, they twist the blade with their accusation. The psychological weapon of mass destruction has been launched by the other side. They're saying, look at how bad your life is, David. Take a look around you. You've sinned against God. He's left you, obviously. Look at the circumstances. To you, David, relationally, he's just God. He's just Elohim. He's just the divine creator, the divine judge. That's it. He's removed from you. There's distance there between you. He's not the covenant God. It's not that intimate for you, David. That's not it at all. He's created you, and you sinned, David. And now he's abandoned you to our hand in judgment. And that's exactly the accusation, 2 Samuel 16. You can either turn there or listen. 2 Samuel 16, so at this point, David and his men have fled the city. They're heading out towards the country, hoping to find uh, some, some more support from that area. And so they're walking out towards the country, and a man named Shimei from the house of Saul confronts David and his men in verse 8. And here's the accusation he makes. He says, the Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil because you are a man of bloodshed. Wow. I know we remember that David did not shed Saul's blood. He went to great lengths, great extent to not harm Saul. The temptation is to listen to the enemies who say God won't save you specifically. Don't do that. Don't listen to that. Don't believe the enemy's accusation that God isn't interested in saving you. Our Lord, and we know this, but sometimes it's so easy to forget this, our Lord is a saving Lord. He, he hears the penitent heart. He cares, and he's faithful, listen, even when we haven't been. Even when we haven't been, he is. David trusts this truth. So he comes to a very important conclusion in verse 3. And he says in verse 3, But you, O Lord, 
are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. And verses 3 through 6 is the second step, and that is you must rest in the Lord's protection. You must rest in the Lord's protection. I want you to notice the emphatic contrast here. David says, but you, O Lord, but you. They're saying this, but you, O Lord. David's eyes are where they should be. They're off his trouble and on his Lord. See, they want his eyes off the Lord and on the trouble. He sees the Lord first and his trouble second. So what does that look like? You see your troubles first, and you have a distorted view of the Lord, right? Troubles look big, Lord looks small. Shift your focus to the Lord first. You see a correct view of the Lord and a correct view of the troubles. He's big, they're small. David has moved from the enemy's accusation to assurance because of his view of the Lord. So that I'm not misunderstood, this is not about look at David. This is not about be like David. Remember what David did to get here. There's a lot of sin in his life. This is also not about the strength of David's faith or even the strength of our faith. It's not about that. This is about the object of David's faith, the object of our faith. Spurgeon has said, it's not like the strength, excuse me, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the strength of him upon whom you rely that saves you. I mean, look at it. David doesn't pray, but me, O oh, my faith, right? He prays, but you, O oh Lord. And then he says, you are a shield about me. David needed protection, and he knew the Lord was that protection, not himself. So David rests in the Lord for protection. And then he says, the Lord is, in verse 3, my glory and the one who lifts my head, regardless of the circumstances. Let me say that again. Regardless of the circumstances, as difficult and as hard as they may be, David is trusting the Lord to restore his dignity and lift him out of his shame and out of his mourning. The question is, how does David rest in the Lord like this? If you will remember, he's still surrounded by an enemy army. He's still surrounded. The circumstances haven't changed. Verses 4 through 5. Same, underneath the same point. David says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. So here David begins to recall the reasons for his rest, for his trust in the Lord. And this is not a blind trust, not a blind faith, not a blind trust. This is a rest, a trust based on faith and evidence God has provided, which is demonstrated by him in his people's lives through answered prayer, provision, and promises. And I'll just point these out to you quickly. And so the first line of evidence is in verse 4. David says literally in the Hebrew, with my voice to Yahweh I cried, or to the Lord I cried. The emphasis is on the object of David's cry. David's response to the trial was to cry out to the Lord, and we saw that in verses 1 and 2. But the communication isn't one way. God answered David. 
Now you might ask, what prayer of David's did God answer here? He answered David's prayer in 2 Samuel 15, 30, and you may remember that the prayer was that the Lord would make the counsel of Absalom's advisors, who used to be David's advisors, but betrayed him, make it foolishness. And so the Lord answered that in 2 Samuel 17, saving David and his men's life. And not only did God respond to David, the Hebrew verb indicates that David knows he will keep answering his prayer. And not only will he keep answering his prayer, he's responding from Jerusalem. Why do I make an emphasis there? Do you realize that Jerusalem is now the enemy's headquarters? That's where Absalom is. If God himself has answered from within the enemy's headquarters, it means the enemy's headquarters isn't actually the enemy's headquarters. It's God's. He owns it, not Absalom. The enemy is saying, God doesn't hear you, David. But the Lord answered him from the very place the enemy is launching their accusation. And to that reality, David rightfully pauses. And you see, Selah, God answered me. He answered me. Second line of evidence we can see would be in verse 5. And this builds on the first line of evidence. David says, I, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. In the midst of being surrounded by an enemy army, David slept soundly. No insomnia for David. How did he do that? Because he trusted in God's protection. The Lord had answered David's prayer and sustained him while he was awake, so he trusted him to sustain him while he slept. God responded to David's response, and David slept soundly. And he slept soundly in spite of the circumstances that had not changed. The Lord has sustained him even at a time when he was most vulnerable, and that would be in his sleep. The clear evidence upon which David is placing his trust is that God answers prayer, provides protection, and he trusted God's faithful character. How about, how about you? How about me? Can we trust his faithfulness during times of tribulation so much so that we sleep well, even when the circumstances are dire? We don't lose sleep over it. And I would say we have more answers than David had. We have 66 books of answers. I'm going to make a quote for you. Pastor Joey quoted this a few weeks ago, and I thought it was perfect. So I'm going to, I'm going to steal it and requote it. One author said, Sleep is a picture in a parable of what it means to be a Christian. Your sleep tonight will be a small but real act of faith. You'll lay your full weight on the bed, trusting this structure to support you. You can fully relax because no effort at supporting yourself is required. Something else is holding you up, and in the same way, throughout the night as you sleep, someone else is sustaining you. This is a picture of what it's like to belong to Christ. Beloved, Believers in God believe God, even in difficult circumstances. They trust him. They rest in his sovereignty regardless of those circumstances. That doesn't sway their trust. Third line of evidence for God's character, his eternal promise of provision. 
Now, you know, in the forefront of David's mind during all this would have been the Lord's covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7. In that chapter, the Lord reminds David that he has been with him and will always be with him even unto death. Then he promises David that his house and his throne will be established, quote, before me forever. And we know out of which the Messiah would flow. He would come from that. If the Lord tells you that he has always been with you, that he's going to be with you, he's going to give you an enduring legacy, that's an eternal promise. And so David, like we all should, clings to the Lord's promise when he's faced with tribulation. Then look what he says in verse 6. Look what he says in verse 6. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. David's trust in the Lord has grown. It's progressed in the difficult circumstances. It hasn't shrunk and regressed. He's examined the evidence. God has sustained him. And he's clinging clinging to the Lord's promises. The Lord has been a shield for David. He's seen it before, and you will remember, he's seen it when he came against a lion, against a bear, a giant, a mad king named Saul. He's seen the Lord be a shield for him. More importantly, he's examined that in the Lord's word and has seen God's faithfulness. He saw it in the covenant we just talked about, the Torah and other historical books at that time. David would have recalled all this to mind, like we do. When we're, when we're stressed, when we're under trials, we start recalling God's word to mind. David would have done that. The Lord told David that he would provide for and protect him, and he's done it. David sees the evidence of the Lord's faithful character and trusts him all the more. The Lord has done it, so David trusts that he will do it. And this is key for us to remember when we're in tribulation. You remember his faithfulness in your life before, and it encourages you about his faithfulness in your life in the future. You look back and recall what he's done for you. David does this. So he says in verse 6, I will not be afraid of this army who have set themselves against me round about. David will not succumb to feelings of fear because he knows God is trustworthy. In Psalm 2.2, God has already said that those who set themselves against his anointed would be subject to his wrath. Well, David is currently the anointed king in Israel. They're setting themselves against him. God takes that seriously. When you set yourself against God's people, you set yourself against God. They may have many thousands, but David has the God who created the many thousands. David has the majority. And when overwhelming troubles come your way, what should we do? We should trust the Lord's faithfulness to help us endure the trouble. We should cling to the promises in his word that David's clinging to. Remember his faithfulness in your life. We're we're to live by biblical principles, by principles in Scripture and their providential outworking in our life. That's the evidence that we rely on, not by feelings and emotions. And that principle is that God is trustworthy. That's what we live by, not our feelings, his trustworthiness. Look at verse 7 with me for the third step. 
and that's you must petition the Lord's deliverance. He says, Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. When tribulation strikes, we're to seek the Lord about the problem, rest in his protection, and knowing his character, knowing his sovereignty, we are to ask him for help. The enemy has set themselves against the Lord's king, so they have set themselves against the Lord. And just as David knows the Lord is trustworthy to save his people, he also knows that he's trustworthy to uphold his holy nature, and his holy nature, listen carefully, demands the punishment of evil doers. So in contrast to the wicked standing against him in verse 2, he asked the Lord to stand against them in verse 7 and save or deliver him from the wicked by destroying them. And I think it's quite ironic that David uses the same word, God, or Elohim, in verse 7 that his enemy did in verse 3, but he adds, if you look carefully, he adds a personal pronoun, my, to the title, after the title God, after calling him Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, the God whom you claim won't save me is actually my Father who will judge you. Look what he says right after that. You have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Remember, David and his men are still on the run. They're still surrounded by the enemy. But he talks of the enemy's defeat as if it already happened. And he does that because the Lord says, because if the Lord says it, it's as good as done. And he's already said it. Even in the near context, you could look at Psalm 2.12. And uh, you fail to bow to the Lord, you will, quote, perish in the way, perish in your wicked way if you fail to submit to him. In the far context, in Numbers 10.35, he's already done it. When Moses, using the same words as David uses here, asked the Lord to rise up and clear out the enemies before the Ark of the Covenant as they were carrying it along. You come at the Lord and his people like a wild animal, and he will give you a crippling blow to the jaw. He'll shatter your teeth, breaking your offensive weapons. Psalm 2.9 says he will shatter you like so much worthless pottery. God said it. He's done it. David believes it. And he asks the Lord to fulfill his word. And so you can count on two truths. One our enemy makes the attack deeply personal. But two, our God is personal, deeply personal. He made us his people, and he will judge his enemy personally. So what are we to do? We're to trust. We're to trust him. We're to ask him. And then look at verse 8 for the fourth step. When we're encountered with trials and tribulation. You must wait on the Lord's provision. Wait on the Lord's provision. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. Having petitioned the Lord's deliverance, David now waits on his provision. David knows that because the Lord does answer prayer, because he has promised, and has saved, and because his very nature is that of a savior, 
that he will save both temporally here and eternally. And notice in whom David places his hope of salvation. It says in verse 8, the Lord. He places that in the Lord. Salvation doesn't come by way of religiosity. Salvation doesn't come through other men or by works or baptism or tradition or even through our, through our self-identification as a Christian. It doesn't come through that. No, it says salvation belongs to the Lord. God owns salvation, period. You said in verse 2 that God won't deliver me, but I trust that he's the very author of salvation and deliverance. Salvation comes to the humble. And in humility, David has acknowledged his sin. He's taken God's side against him. He's done that in 2 Samuel 16. He knows he can't save himself. He knows his earthly means can't deliver him. But he also knows God's character, that God is a saving God, and that he will save him. We're, we're not to focus on self and circumstances in the trial, but on the Savior. And David does. He trusts God to save because he is the only one who can save Look, salvation belongs to him alone, therefore it comes from him alone. He's the only one that can distribute that. And this is just as relevant for us as it was for David thousands of years ago because the Lord hasn't changed, right? He's still the only way of salvation. And it's that salvation that's the blessing upon his people. To be saved by the Lord is to be blessed by the Lord, and that great reality gives David pause in the midst of his great tribulation. Selah means pause. He knows the Lord will deliver him. And we can know that too. Well, Absalom was a wicked son and met his demise. David's sin had cost him very dearly. He lost his beloved son. He was killed. However, there was another son of David, the long-awaited perfect son promised in the Davidic covenant. He went through a whole lot more, a lot more trials, a lot more troubles than David. And this son died too. But his death and his resurrection signed, sealed, and delivered the salvation of many. The Lord is true. He has kept his promise. He has delivered blessing of salvation upon his people through his son. Salvation truly is from the Lord. The Messiah whom David was looking forward to, we look back on the same Messiah. David's tribulation had reached epic proportions, but he trusted that his God was bigger. And at a critical point in his life, he sought the Lord in prayer. He rested in his protection. He petitioned his deliverance, and he waited on his provision. He prayed, he prayed and trusted in the Lord, excuse me, so, so then he waited on the Lord. Trusted in the Lord, waited on the Lord, and it was through the divinely designed set of painful circumstances and the resulting patient prayer that David saw the Lord's faithfulness yet again. The Lord used tribulation to draw David to himself and then demonstrated his faithful character by delivering, delivering him. And so why do we have the idea that tribulation is always bad because it's difficult, because it's hard, it's always bad? No. 
Sometimes the Lord uses that to draw us to himself, to display his glory, to display his mercy in our lives. When we're faced with tribulation, do we look at the same Lord? Do we look at the tribulation? The Lord's faithful. He's true. He doesn't abandon his people. Not only will he deliver, but in his graciousness and faithfulness, he's provided his son, our only deliverer. Salvation is from the Lord. The Lord Jesus is the one in whom we are to trust. So what do we do? We trust him. We ask him. We cling to him. He will deliver us. He will deliver you. And um, we'll get ready to pray as the men come forward. Lord Jesus, we ask that you be our shield. Protect us from the enemy. Teach us to look to you for help and not at the circumstances. Thank you that you answer our prayers. Thank you that you sustain us. Thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you that you, the owner of salvation, give it freely to those who repent and trust in you. Amen.